You may have seen the painting, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, in his famous painting of the Last Supper. Uh, da Vinci actually had it wrong. In Jesus' culture, the disciples would have been arranged around a U-shaped, low-lying table called a triclinium. Each man would have been reclining on his left side. The food would have been served in front of them. Their feet would have been outstretched behind them. Normally, before supper, the host would have a slave wash the feet of his guest. This was servant's work. Only the lowest of servants would wash feet. But notice, this time it is during supper. And it must have been slow motion. Here's John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew the one who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, I picked this story because, to my mind, this story, as much as any in the Bible, gets at the heart of Christianity. And I'd like to suggest to you tonight it's not what most people think. Jesus asked in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? And I am suggesting that we do not. I am suggesting that we do not get this story. Most people see this scene as an example of humility and service. Even our Lord says in verse 15, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The point being that if you call yourself a Christian, nothing, not even the most menial task, is beneath you. And that even the feet of Judas, even the feet of Judas are washed. 
implies that we are called to extend ourselves even to the most undeserving, and that is true. But if you look closer, it's obvious Jesus is doing more than giving an object lesson in humility, because that the disciples could have easily understood. When Jesus says in verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. He doesn't mean after I'm finished, when your feet are dry, then you will understand. See, if this text were principally about setting an example of service, then you'd have to conclude that even Jesus' disciples missed the point. One of these men will betray him, one of these men will deny him, and all of them with their washed feet, will soon after this walk away from their master. They love one another like this, wouldn't we? Shouldn't we? But to be honest, some of us didn't make it past breakfast today without losing our peace. Some of us are filled with fear. Some filled with anxiety. Some of you are stuck. Some of you are feeling very spiritually dry and you've felt this way for a long time. Wash one another's feet. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that is not what this text is principally about. No, the key to our text lies in this exchange, this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Verse 6, Jesus comes to Simon Peter who says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter is reluctant, as well he should be, to have his master kneel before him and wipe the grime from between his toes. After all, John has been careful to let us know that Jesus, in performing this task, that Jesus knows exactly who he is. Verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John is saying, here is God in the flesh, kneeling before his creation. Now I want you to use your imagination and put yourself in this scene. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Could you bear to have Jesus kneel before you, look you in the face, touch your feet? Could you bear to have Jesus wash your feet and wipe them? Of course, with Peter, we'd pull our feet back. Jesus knows it's hard, so he answers Peter, verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Afterward you will understand. Understand what? Peter refuses a second time, this time even more strongly. Verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. Never Peter says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet, never, not ever, not me. Now here's the crucial question, is Peter being humble? He appears humble, he says, not my feet, Lord, not you, not this, please, Lord, you shall never wash my feet, he says. As if to say, I know who you are. I know who you are, Jesus, and I know who I am. And I know I don't deserve this from you. 
I cannot accept. And perhaps we'd respond the same way. Not my feet, Lord. If you're a note taker, I only have one point. Because no matter where you're coming from, single or married, Christian or seeker, or both, Peter's problem is ours. One old writer, William Temple, commenting on this scene in John 13 says, We rather shrink from this text. We are ready, perhaps, to be humble before God, but we do not want Him to be humble in His dealings with us. It's the most offensive thing about Christianity found in the last place you'd expect. Peter cannot accept the love of God. Peter cannot accept the love of God on God's terms. Not my feet, Lord. He can't accept God's love on God's terms. He resists. Not me. Not there. Not this. And at first glance, nothing perhaps seems easier to accept. If you think, I have no problem accepting God's love on God's terms, well, let me see if perhaps I can convince you otherwise. One of the greatest stories of world literature became one of the most popular musicals in Broadway history, Les Miserables, based on the novel of the same name by Victor Hugo. As you may know, Les Miserables is a story of Jean Valjean. Valjean had spent 19 years in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. His sentence and his suffering are undeserved. And this turns him into a bitter and angry man. In desperation, he seeks lodging one night at the home of a bishop who treats him kindly. Yet in the middle of the night, Valjean steals the bishop's silver. The police discover him on the run, a beggar, arms full of silver, and conclude this man must be a thief. But when the police bring him back to the bishop's house for identification, and all the bishop has to do is nod his head, and Valjean will be back in prison for the rest of his life, instead the bishop hands Valjean two silver candlesticks in front of the constables. And if you've seen the musical, these, silver, these, these candlesticks are on the play, are on the stage almost the entire musical. But he gives Valjean the candlesticks implying that he had given the stolen silver to him. And you may remember from the musical, My friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Now, now that is grace. That is grace. Grace is doing good to someone who deserves the opposite. We say easily, and we talk perhaps easily, of amazing grace, and it truly is amazing, but when grace happens to you, it's quite traumatic. That's one, way you under, that's one way you know that you understand what Christianity is all about. That you have finally encountered for yourself the trauma of grace. This is not in the musical. It's in the novel. 
Victor Hugo puts you inside Valjean's head after the bishop extends him the gift. Quote, Valjean could not say if he had been touched or humiliated. At first, in opposition to this celestial kindness, he summoned all the pride he could. He dimly felt the priest's pardon was the hardest assault and the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. Close quote. We sing of amazing grace, but Victor Hugo uses words in relation to grace that we never think of. Assault, attack. Let me quote Hugo once again. Valjean felt his hardness of heart would be complete if he could just resist this final kindness. But if he yielded and gave into it, he would have to renounce the hatred with which the acts of others had for so many years filled his soul and in which he had found so much satisfaction. He knew that in the face of this assault, he must conquer or be conquered. Now you hear what Victor Hugo is saying. Valjean sensed that the bishop's grace threatened him. It threatened the very basis of his life. For Valjean to accept this grace, this love from the bishop... Valjean would have to renounce the bitterness, the anger, the pain that he had come to define himself by. See, it might have been a miserable life, but it was his life. It was the only life he'd ever known. For years, I had a sign on the wall of my office from an obscure writer named Herman Ritterboss, and the sign read, It is not sin as such that makes us lost people. It is the repudiation of grace. It is not sin as such that makes us lost people. It is the repudiation of grace. I had that on my wall. To repudiate is to reject it is to refuse to have anything to do with. And here Ritterboss is saying that what makes us lost people is not, it's not the mistakes we've made. It's not the things that you think make you lost. It's not your sin. It is our repudiating, it is our refusing the grace of God. Because aren't we with God like Valjean with the bishop? Aren't we with God like Peter, with Christ pulling his feet back? We are more than ready to serve him. But to see him kneeling before us. Not me, Lord. Not you. Not this. Why is this grace so hard for us to accept? Well, here is C.S. Lewis's best answer. Though this is the sort of love we need, he writes, it is not the sort we want. We want to be loved for our own cleverness, beauty, generosity, and usefulness. 
How difficult it is to receive and to go on receiving a love that does not depend on our own attraction can be seen from an extreme case. Suppose yourself a man struck down shortly after marriage by an incurable disease which may not kill you for many years, but leaves you useless, impotent, hideous, dependent on your wife's earnings, full of unavoidable demands. And suppose her care to be inexhaustible. The man who can take this sweetly who can receive all and give nothing without resentment. Lewis concludes, in such a case, to receive is harder and perhaps more blessed than to give. Now why is this true grace of God if it is going to come into your life a most formidable assault? Well, it's the same reason Peter pulls his feet back. Because grace means, just as that sickly husband has nothing to offer back to his wife, all he can do is receive and go on receiving day after day after day. So we have nothing to offer back to God to deserve His love ever. All we can do is receive and go on receiving day after day after day. And we just have to sit there and take it. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, all of you, you have no part with me. Suppose you go out to eat with a friend and they offer to pay the entire bill for you. And you say, oh no, let's split it. And they say, I insist, I got it. And you say, that's nice. But what if they always insisted? If you've ever had a surprise visitor at Christmas, you know how hard it can be to receive a gift when you have nothing to give in return. It can be hard to accept charity, can it? For you... Put together, people. It is hard to accept charity. How hard? If you have problem, if you have a problem letting other people do things for you, let me ask you, if you can't receive charity from another person, what makes you think you've received it from God? Now listen carefully. Some of you have heard a thousand sermons on grace. You've heard grace so often, but you know there is a chasm between your belief and your experience. You know you can't seem to make it drip down from here to here. Well, here is the reason. People often say it's the love of God that changes a human life, but that is not right. That's not right. Because, in fact, God loves everyone in this room. Great writer, one of the first female writers of the English language, Julian of Norwich, she said, each one of us is so tenderly loved by God. 
And yet it's obvious not everyone's life is changed by this fact. It's not the love of God that changes us or we'd all be changed. It's not the love of God that changes you. It's receiving the love of God. That's what changes you. A small distinction, but it makes all the difference in the world. Not my feet, Lord. Because deep down, I know who I am. And I know who you are. And I know I don't deserve this. God's love on God's terms. Because to receive that requires us to admit our need over and over and over. The writer David Benner once put it, and this is worth writing down. Benner wrote, we don't dare accept love. We don't dare accept love unconditionally. Because that would mean accepting the frightening helplessness and vulnerability that is our true condition. We don't dare accept love unconditionally because that would mean accepting the frightening helplessness and vulnerability that is our true condition. You know, for years, I I couldn't get through this story without choking up. It's because if you read the Bible well, you put yourself in the story. And I realized a few years ago what essentially Jesus is telling Peter. I mean, Jesus is he's kneeling in front of Peter and he's, he's looking right at Peter. He's looking right at me. He's looking right at you. And he is saying, Peter, let me love you. Let me love you in my way. Let me love you the way I love you, the only way I can love you. Love bids you welcome, but your soul draws back. Love says you must sit down. You must sit down and let God love you. And now do you see what Jesus is doing here during this, his last supper? When the text begins in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end means not just chronologically to the end of his life, but utterly. Jesus is showing the full extent of his love. See, Jesus knows what is going to happen to him tomorrow. That's verse 1. He knows his hour has come. That's in the Gospel of John, always a reference to the death of Jesus. He knows his hour has come. And when Jesus says in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. He means after tomorrow. After my death, after my resurrection, after you see the type of Lord I really am, then you will understand. See, the full extent of the love of Christ is not that he humbled himself to wash feet. The full extent of Christ's love is that he humbled himself again. Again, taking the form of a slave. See, only runaway slaves were crucified. John 13 is much more than an object lesson in humility. Jesus is giving us nothing less than a parable. That's what John 13 is. It is an enacted parable. It is a prophetic symbol of the end of Jesus' life. 
where he would not just lay aside his garments, verse 4 of our text, but he would lay down his life. John chapter 10. It's the same word, laying down, and I think the echo is deliberate. In this Last Supper, Jesus is doing more than giving you an example. He is preparing, he is preparing his disciples to bear his humiliation. As if to say, Peter, 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 if you cannot accept the partial humiliation of my washing your feet, how could you accept the complete humiliation of my dying for your sins? Peter, if you recoil at my washing you, how much more am I dying for you? Peter, you have to let me love you. My question for you is, are you letting God love you? Well, here are three tests. You can ask yourself, how would you know that you're letting God love you? Here are three tests. One, are you absolutely confident that God accepts you? And do you live and walk in that confidence. See, there are many people who think that such assurance, such confidence of God is presumptuous. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we say, who can say for sure? I mean, we're all such a mixed bag. And it seems so modest, even humble. But if you are not absolutely confident that God is pleased when he looks at you, don't you see you're just like Peter pulling his feet back? It looks humble, not my feet, Lord, but it's because you are still relying upon yourself. It is because you are not relying upon the finished, complete work of the Son of God for you on the cross. I dare say it is because you do not understand the gospel. Every other religion in the world gives you a God you must serve to be accepted. Only Christianity gives you a God whose service you must accept. And that takes courage. That takes courage. A second test. Do you understand the trauma of grace? And has it intersected with your life? See, we're all of us so prone to build our identity around our work. It's really our default operating system. Succeed, compete, compare. You are what you do or what others make of you. And grace comes along in the middle of the game and blows the whistle and says, you win and you win. He says, what do you mean? I'm in the middle of the game. And grace says, you do not validate your existence by what you do. You do not. You cannot. And that's the trauma of it. You cannot. There is nothing you can do. But since proving ourselves underwrites almost everything we do, we don't know what to do. That's the trauma of it. It's the life you know. A third test. How do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? Let's say you do something kind for someone and they don't even recognize you. They don't even say thank you. 
I mean, most people say Peter's problem was that Peter was expecting a certain type of Messiah, one to come in power and might. But I don't think that is Peter's root problem. Peter does not want that type of master who washes feet because Peter does not want to be that type of man himself, one who washes feet. And ultimately the reason Peter thinks it's beneath his master to be a servant is because Peter thinks it's beneath himself to be a servant. Which is to say the true test of whether you are receiving grace is if you extend it to others. That is the truest test. You can't give away what you don't possess. The test of whether you get it is if you give it. Would your friends describe you as kind? Would your friends describe you as gracious, merciful, quick to forgive? Which is why our text ends in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. My favorite poet is Robert Frost. In one of his poems, it's actually the poem John F. Kennedy had Frost read at his inauguration. Frost captures the heart of John 13 precisely. Frost writes, Something we were withholding made us weak until we found it was ourselves we were withholding from our land of living and forthwith found salvation in surrender. Some of you came to this conference and you know that you're not a follower of Jesus. But you came anyway Something drew you here. Some of you came, you grew up in a Christian home. You've been going to church all your life. But you know with unsettling clarity that you have never surrendered all of your life to Christ. And you see yourself in Peter. Lord, I'll do anything for you. But not me, Lord. Not there. Not this. To both of you and to all of you, I say, let God love you the only way He can. Though it may feel traumatic because it is real, Yet, if you follow it through, it will lead you to a whole new life. That's what glorification is all about. On the other side of this death to your ego, on the other side of this death to your old self, there is a new life, a better one. And resurrection is the guarantee that God's love will never let you down. But you have to give the hardest thing to give. You have to give in. But when you do, listen to how Victor Hugo describes Valjean. Jean Valjean's heart swelled and he burst into tears. And for the first time in 19 years, he could see his life in a light he had never seen before. If you are not a follower of Jesus... Tonight is your night. Something we were withholding made us weak until we found that it was ourselves we were withholding 
from our land of living and forthwith found salvation in surrender. Let me close with this story. David Ireland had a neuromuscular disease that slowly destroyed his body. It took away his ability to walk. He first began to discover it when he would drag his left foot as he walked. Eventually, it shut down his whole body and killed him. But in the period of time he was wheelchair-bound, doctors discovered his wife had become pregnant. And the doctor told him, you will most likely not survive to see the birth of your own child. And so David Ireland began to write letters to what they didn't know at the time was a boy to parent his child from the grave without ever having met the boy. The letters were later published after he died. They're called Letters to an Unborn Child, and here's my favorite. It's the letter he wrote about his wife. This is what he said. I want to introduce you to your mother because if I don't give her the full credit that a husband is supposed to give a wife, it's not likely you'll understand what an incredible person your mother is. When we just do something simple, apparently motivated by me, like taking her out to eat, this is what has to happen. First, she must take me to the restroom and disconnect my urine and fecal bags, empty them into the toilet, then push me into our stand-up shower, lift off the arm of the wheelchair, lay down a board, slide me across to the seat, lift up the board, pull down the arm, fold up the chair, back it out, turn out the shower, turn on the shower and bathe me. When that's finished, she dries me. She wheels the wheelchair back up, she pulls off the arm, she lays down the board, she slides my body across, reconnects the urine and the fecal bags. She dresses me. She combs my hair. She tightens my tie. She wheels me outside beyond the garage after she has dressed me entirely. She lifts up the garage door, your mother, backs out the car, opens up the door, pushes over my chair, lifts up the chair arm, lays down the board, slides me across, puts down the arm, folds up the chair, buckles me in, shuts the door, lifts the trunk, puts the wheelchair in the trunk, closes the trunk, closes the door, gets in the car, and then drives us to the restaurant. Then she does it all again. Goes to the trunk, opens the trunk, gets out the wheelchair, and he repeats in his letter and comes to the door, opens the door, lifts up the arm, lays down the board, slides me across, pushes down the arm, closes the door, locks the door, we go into the restaurant where she feeds me. She wipes the drool that drips from my mouth. She pays the bill, leaves the tip, takes me back out and does the whole thing all over again, and then we go home. Disconnect the fecal bag. Disconnect the urine bag, empty them. Puts on my pajamas, bathes me, puts me in bed, And then this is what she says to me. Honey, thank you for taking me out to eat tonight. I tell you that story because you've heard of the scripture that says on the day of your glorification, 
that you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll think to yourself, are you kidding? Jesus, you did everything. Jesus, you did everything for me that I could never do. I tried to find my significance by my own hands. But you told me I was significant because of you. I'm so unworthy. And he will say, I have made you worthy. You must sit down and eat. And you will say, then not my feet only, Lord, but all of me. And he will. And you are clean. And he is washing you. And he is turning you into something beautiful for God. And your real self is waiting to be found in Christ. That is glorification. That is the gospel. Well, let me pray for us. Almighty God, our Father, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room tonight. I pray for those who know they have never surrendered. They have never let you love them in the only way you can. And Lord, I pray for those many in this room that describes and that tonight they would find salvation and surrender. Lord, I pray for those many in this room who are so eager to do things for you, who are so busy in service and ministry. Jesus, would you say loudly over our lives tonight, you must sit down. And let me serve you. And Lord, may the cry of our heart be with Peter. Not my feet only, Lord, but all of me. And Lord, may all of us believe in surrendering every part of our life to you. We find our truest and best self. The glorified vision that you have for us that you've had for us before the foundation of the world. Jesus, would you cause our lives to blossom? We pray in your name.